You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. Ed Ludlow, he's off. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, Arm prepares to file for its IPO as soon as today in what could be one of the biggest tech listings ever on a U.S. exchange. We will bring you the details. Plus, we'll sit down with venture capitalist and entrepreneur Keith Raboy to discuss how his company, Open Store, is helping small businesses grow amid a pretty competitive e-commerce landscape. And Meta plans to launch a web version of its microblogging app, Threads, early this week. We understand the newest challenge is going to be taking on competitor X. We'll have all of that and so much more throughout the app. But first, we're sticking on chips. We're sticking this time on the designer of chips. Arm expected, of course, to file paperwork as soon as today for its initial public offering, which is expected to be the biggest of the year, most certainly. With us for the latest, Bloomberg's Leanna Baker, who I think perhaps doesn't have as restful weekends as she was used to recently. So when we're looking towards these numbers, how much clarity will we get on the actual amount that SoftBank is going to be selling here and, and what valuation? Those are all great questions. We're not actually going to get those answers in the filing today. There's going to be a lot of blank spots. Uh, for example, how much are they trying to raise? We've reported it could be somewhere around 8 to $10 billion, but we've also have in a story today that it could now be lower than that because SoftBank is not selling as much as they had originally liked. There was an insider transaction we've reported on where the Vision Fund, which owns 25% of ARM, sold their stake back to SoftBank. So the Vision Fund is no longer a seller in this deal. So it's a little complicated, but it does seem like they don't need as much proceeds as before. So that's something we'll be trying to figure out when the filing finally hits today. What was interesting is the Vision Fund saw a bit of an uplift, certainly to the valuation. What was it, about 64? 64 billion, which is an interesting number because they bought that stake for around 32 billion. So the Vision Fund has doubled their money. Uh, so that's great for their you know, LPs, Saudi Arabia, etc., whoever is involved in the Vision Fund. But what does that mean for ARM valuation because to me it would seem to be that they now need to get above 64 billion as a value although that's just an insider mark on it so there's really going to be a lot of questions how do you value this company how is it valued against its peers Uh, we've already reported on some of the financials the revenue total revenue was down one percent last year 
but there's going to be more to uncover and unpack in the filing. We'll see more on margins and other things we haven't reported yet. And let's get to the nitty-gritty of the business model, because this is a company that helps basically define a blueprint for a chip, then be able to really understand how it's the most productive it can be. It is so wedded to the mobile phone industry. And of course, that's one that's been slowing. So how is this company trying to set itself up for success? So it's right that um, mobile and ARM, it's ubiquitous in mobile. But Rene Haas, the CEO, has been trying to diversify ARM away from mobile into more lucrative areas like the data center, PCs, servers. So we'll be trying to see how that's going, what the progress is. Remember, an IPO filing is also backward looking, so mm -hmm. it won't have forecasts. So there's going to be a lot that we see in this filing, but we won't know, you know, how what the future holds for ARM. Um, but we'll be trying to figure that out. And can you try and like get into the head a little bit of Masayoshi's son here as to what SoftBank would hold back a little bit for? Is it because they think they could get better valuations, they sold stakes later, they therefore want to hold back in terms of putting it all into the market, which is still a, a testy market to be polite at the moment? We've reported that SoftBank would look to float about 10% of the company. So by holding on to 90% of ARM, that would indicate they're still bullish on the future. They're not ready to part ways. They have owned it since 2016. Mm. They do need a win after a lot of their failed bets on Stardust, but they're not willing to just, you know, get rid of this. Uh, although they did try to sell to NVIDIA. That deal was, was scuppered last year. The regulators, a headache for many. We thank you so much, Diana Baker. I mean, of course, going to be all over this throughout the week when it comes to ARMS IPO. But let's get you an update of really what this says about the broader IPO market in the world of tech. Phil Hazlitt's with us, I'm pleased to say. Co-founder of Equity Zen. It's a marketplace for accessing pre-IPO equity. Now, Phil, I don't think I can access ARM equity here because I'm sure there haven't been that many secondary market sales going on at the moment apart from SoftBank buying back from the Vision Fund. But ultimately, what has Desire been like to be buying companies? equity at this moment in the private market? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, we've seen historically that transactions on the secondary market very much uh, coincide with what we see in the IPO market. And so what that means is that over the last year and a half, things have been a little bit slower. Uh, however, we have similar optimism kind of post this ARM IPO that a number of other companies will test the market. Uh, but it's worth kind of saying that Arm is not your classic venture-backed company mm. going back to the or coming to the market. Arm is a company that was public up until 2016, so investors are very familiar. It's a very different kind of uh, beast than you might have a venture-backed company coming out. Yeah, well said. One that I'm sure many uh, prior analysts in the UK is rubbing their hands with glee to get back into the financials of this business, Phil. I'm interested, therefore, what we're hoping for. If this IPO goes well, goes successfully, who's there standing by? We know Instacart, for example, eyeing the market as soon as September, for example. Yeah, unfortunately, I can't give specific names given that we work with a lot of the companies that are hopefully going to be coming public soon. But I'd say that what investors will be looking at is how successful is this IPO in, say, September? Does that mean we have enough time to get our affairs in order and maybe lift before the end of the year? Historically, these two weeks leading up to Labor Day have been incredibly quiet. I'm sure there's a lot of very frustrated investment bankers all across the world gallivanting and finding their way back to New York or London or wherever to work on this. Uh, so I would imagine if we do actually see a couple venture-backed tech IPOs, we'll see rumors of filing and paperwork between now and Labor Day, in, because that's the only way these companies are going to have are, are going to be ready enough to actually list and start trading by say October or November before you get to the next quiet season, which is in December. And if we're leading the tea leaves, there have been a couple of relatively successful initial public offerings. Just remind us of who's come and tapped and, and what the signal is, therefore, for the rest of the market. 
Sure. I mean, in the last two years, it's been incredibly quiet in the tech front, apart from probably just some spin outs. You know, we saw Kenview come out from uh, Johnson Johnson. So we've seen some spin outs work. ARM is going to be closer to tech, right? You know, I think a fun fact is that ARM was actually started by a $3 million investment from Apple. So it has Silicon Valley roots. <laughs> uh, and so I think it also serves as a bit of a bellwether for how much do people really think AI is worth and how valuable is it to the people selling the picks and shovels? NVIDIA has certainly indicated that it's worth a lot, uh, but ARM will be yet another bellwether and kind of indicate if there are other companies that are building on top of this new AI foundation, they can perform well in this market as well. Because we honestly haven't seen a large tech IPO in the last, say, two plus years. And, you know, we had kind of the SPACpocalypse that happened in 2021, 2022. And so that's not really available anymore. Growth fundings are down. So I know that there's a lot of investors and a lot of founders and CEOs that are eager to see if this is a new channel for, for fundraising. How frustrating has it been for those that need a liquidity event right now who are working at some of these startups and, and, you know, need to manage their life, need to buy a home, need to put kids through school. Yeah, sometimes it's even worse and they're no longer working at the company because they've been asked politely to no longer come to the company. And that's even more frustrating. You've got this combination of layoffs and at Equities End, we hear a lot about uh, employees, current and former, desperately looking for liquidity. And I think the most proactive founders that we've talked to at Equities End are ones that are talking to their companies and their shareholders about ways to address liquidity through maybe tender offers or future IPOs. But it's something we hear about a lot. There's still a disconnect on what management thinks is not really an issue and how employees are asking all the time for places like Equities End, can we sell shares? I have down payments on a house. Interest rates have gotten higher. And so I think there's a bit of a kind of a a boiling sensation happening amongst uh, co-founders, or sorry, amongst employees, and optimistic that we'll see a bit of that release valve in the IPO market, which will find its way down into the pre-IPO markets as well. I mean, you're all about access to startups, to private companies with accredited investors. What about sort of the global nature of that investor now? We are in a time of, of geopolitical tension, to put it mildly, between the US and China. How much do you think when these companies are coming to market, we will see a global inbound interest in buying US companies or indeed UK yeah. companies such as ARM? Absolutely. We've actually seen it already. So we've worked with you know individual investors that invest on the equities and platform from 90 plus countries. Obviously, there's a large concentration amongst the U.S. and the U.K., um, but we're eager to see that more and more U.S. companies are you know breaking through and working on really hard technology problems. I think what's really exciting, what we've seen in the last 18, 24 months is kind of the emergence of hard tech, deep tech, really difficult, com uh, you know, problems that companies are trying to solve. And that's really piqued the curiosity of, of people around the world that we've seen. So we continue to see investor interest for US-based companies in cybersecurity and AI in particular. Those are probably the most common themes, which is unsurprising given the aforementioned geopolitical risks. So we're excited to see that, that trend continue. But ultimately, yes, our goal is to kind of bring this market opportunity to not just uh, the wealthy or the 1%, but, but everyone else that wants to be included. Phil, thanks so much for giving us your expertise today. Phil Hazlitt, he's of course co-founder of Equity Zen.
Meanwhile, when we want to talk about something else that's affecting potentially a load of tech entrepreneurs and builders at the moment, we're following Tropical Storm Hillary. It's a weather event. It's pummeling California, flooding rains today, disrupting flights, it's knocking out power, in fact, across parts of the state. Now, across the southwest region, the ongoing and historic amount of rainfall, we understand, is expected to cause life-threatening to catastrophic floods, along with landslides, mudslides. It's all according to the National Hurricane Center. We'll continue to monitor the storm for you and bring you up. From New York, this is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Talk China for a moment. Search engine provider Baidu is set to report second quarter earnings tomorrow, but the sluggish Chinese economy and of course some setbacks from a key segment of its business have caused brokers to lower their earnings expectations for this particular company. For more, let's bring in Bloomberg's Isabel Lee, who's going to be analyzing and keeping abreast of what's going to happen with Baidu. And I mean, it's had a big run up. What do we expect in terms of numbers? So a couple of things. You're right. Uh, brokers have really lowered expectations. In fact, they expect a slowdown in net income growth. And this is a combination of many things. So in the beginning, Baidu was one of the first movers into the AI space. And first mover is important. It created a chat GPT-like technology called ErnieBot. But then disappointments are now slowly piling up on ErnieBot. Main key reason is the lack of consumer consumption. Mm -hmm. I guess it's just getting it hard. It's finding it hard for people to use the machine. And because of that, analysts are saying, hmm, Maybe this isn't as promising as we imagine, and they're slowly, really just lowering their expectations, and that's really what's weighing the stock lower. And if you look at it, options traders are also moving because the put-call ratio, which is a sign of bearish um, sentiment, is rising this month. So people are kind of positioning against that tomorrow, so we'll see, but who knows? 
Maybe uh, earnings will surprise us. Exactly. I mean, they have been nervous ahead of perhaps these numbers because actually there's been a lot of profit to take off the table when it comes to Baidu. It has outperformed some of its other competitors, right? It definitely has. It's up around 30%, 13% year to date, and it's the best performer in the Hang Seng Index, which is down kind of 3%. But we must remember that Baidu may be a little bit ahead, but its competitors are closely behind from Tencent to Alibaba, and both of them, both those giants are also now creating their own AI chat GPT like thing. I mean, yes, you're the first mover, but you have to maintain that because if a competitor, second or third, leaps over you, then that's going to spell trouble for you. But analysts are saying that the outlook remains cloudy at best, so it's actually not looking that good. I mean, it's such early days when it comes to generative AI and any of that becoming revenue-inducing. But what is revenue-inducing for Baidu is, well, local governments and, and the actual Chinese economy spending on AI-related products, at least. How have we seen that, considering the macroeconomy? Okay, that's true. Um, AI is just one arm. They also have a cloud arm. But then overall, it's just not looking good for China. We have consumer spending down, prices are down. The company's real estate sector is and the, one of the biggest companies is on the cusp of a default. One in five young people there don't have jobs. It's just not really looking that good overall. And the big rebound that people were hoping to see just didn't pan out. A lot of analysts are saying that the 5% target that China is aiming for may not come true. But then, you know, you don't also want to be all this gloom and doom. It may be too early. But for now, it's not looking good with China. In effect, it's affecting its biggest sector, which is the tech sector, and because this sector is very domestic, unlike here in the US, a lot of international people use whatever products the Wall Street here, Silicon Valley makes, but it's not the same in China. A lot of the products there are really used by domestic. I think, um, I mean, really to the point that some of these GDP figures, city, for example, economists downgrading where they think overall China's going to go, some analysts starting to figure that into Baidu and the rest of the tech sector. Brilliant to get Isabel ahead of those, of course. Keep an eye on how Baidu performs, Isabel Lee there. Meanwhile, let's stick with AI and chatbots because, well, Naver, whose line messaging app and search engine dominates Japan and South Korea's internet landscape, it's going to unveil, guess what, its own answer to ChatGPT as it joins a race that is global to tap potentially transformative AI technology. Now, the company is expected to take the lid off several generative AI services. It's been working on latest and soon as this week, we understand. Time now for Talking Tech. First up, after plunging following its earnings report last week, Adyen's most bearish analyst predicts even further declines. Look, the Citigroup analyst said in a note he remains skeptical of Adyen's reaching its long-term margin target, maintaining his sell rating on the stock. Meanwhile, Broadcom's $61 billion takeover of VMware was cleared by the UK's antitrust watchdog, paving the way for the one of the largest ever tech deals. And the CMA confirmed its provisional decision to clear the deal after finding that it wouldn't substantially reduce competition in the supply of key computer server products. Plus, let's talk about the Tesla data breach that was back in May, impacted more than 75,000 people and included employee-related records. Now, according to a notice posted by the Office of the Maine Attorney General, the breach was a result of insider wrongdoing. Tesla says two former employees shared information with a foreign media outlet. So let's get the details on that story. Bloomberg's Dana Hall is with us. And Dana... I mean, it was Handelsblatt, it was a German publication that we understand got the information, contacted Tesla. What do you think that was being shared here, shared here by who? 
Well, it sounds like it was internal employee information, things like names, addresses, social security numbers. And, you know, the details that we learned on Friday are thanks to the fact that the state of Maine is one of the few states in the United States that kind of regularly posts data breach information. So um, Tesla is now informing uh, former and current employees that they were impacted. Apparently nine of them live in the state of Maine. So the state of Maine got this notification. And um, they're, they're saying that two former employees basically shared this data with Handelsblatt and that Tesla has taken legal action against them. The one thing that I don't know is where exactly these former employees live. I'm assuming that it's in Europe. I'm, I'm guessing that it could be in Germany, given that Handelsblatt was the, uh, was the publication that originally got this information, but it does not appear that these folks are in the United States. I can't find any record of a lawsuit being filed here in the U.S. So in terms of next steps, we're just sort of wondering, well, okay, where is this lawsuit? Who are the employees? And is there any kind of EU GDPR sanction coming uh, given this data breach? Interesting. I mean, Tesla has said that they've cooperated with law enforcement, but is there any well, ramification of what they should have been doing, could have been doing, because when it's internal wrongdoing, that must be pretty hard to, to prevent. Right. Well, it sounds like, you know, internal wrongdoing and two employees basically sharing employee data. So to be clear, no consumers were impacted by this that we know of. This really seems to be impacting Tesla employees. But why there weren't more controls, how these internal employees had access to this database, I'm not entirely clear. And, you know, the, the Tesla statement uh, on this main website is pretty vague, like cooperating with law enforcement. But, like, which law enforcement? Like, are we talking, like, the Dutch regulatory authorities, the EU, Germany? Like, it's not entirely clear where within Europe this is all happening. And Autopilot, the driver assistance product, that was something that seemed to be flagged in some of the data that was at least leaked to Handles Black. Why is that so important to Tesla? Well, Autopilot is just a big part of Tesla's valuation. You know, Elon Musk himself has said that, you know, the the promise of future self-driving is like a big part of why investors believe in the company. Um, and this data breach covered all kinds of things. What we learned on Friday is is really more just about the employee information. Um, but yeah, I mean, Autopilot is of huge interest to investors and uh, it's a big differentiator, right? Like, you know, electric vehicles are now becoming more common, but Tesla's Autopilot is, is something that Tesla still markets as being something that sets it apart from other EVs. One to watch, considering also just how global Tesla is. And I know that that was something Handelsbank was shining light on, the fact of access perhaps to, by China as well. Anna Hal, we thank you so much coming to us on that data breach, de well, the nuances within it. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. What about payments processing in, in the world of e-commerce more generally? What about e-commerce in terms of our enthusiasm around it? I'm pleased to say we can get a really close look at it via OpenStore. It's the largest operator of Shopify brands in the world. It's announced ways to actually support some of the smaller players on the platform using OpenStore Boost to help the businesses grow. Joining us now is, of course, the OpenStore CEO and well-known VC, Keith Raboy. Keith, it's great to have some time with you. And what we loved about some of the announcements coming out is actually the intricate detail you're giving of just who's on there selling via Shopify and how small some of them are. Was it a surprise of how small some of these online commerce players are? Well, we always knew that of the 2 million Shopify stores, that many of them would be long-tail businesses. The whole premise of OpenStore is that we will offer to buy a long tail Shopify store 
or allow the owner to turn it into passive cash flow and take a break. Um, and we're always targeting one to $10 million GMB stores, so pretty small. But in studying the market over the last two years that we've been in business, we realized 85% of Shopify stores are very small, and they don't have the tools and the opportunities to grow into that scale. So 85% of businesses on Shopify earn less than $50,000 a year, and so we're going to fix that. Anybody who's earning 50 to 500 k we'll allow them to apply, and we'll give them access to all of our tools and expertise and try to grow them 10x hmm. in a few months. Okay, and then they get into the remit of your sweet spot. So does your sweet spot change at all, or do you continue to want to be looking at buying and running companies that are about a million to the likes of 10 million in terms of GMV? I think the biggest market opportunity for us where people don't have access, the brand owners don't have access to capital, and where they really don't have a lot of liquidity options, and they're confronting a, a really challenging uh, choice, which is to run a business 24-7, sweat 24-7 forever, or they can allow us to drive the business and we'll guarantee them the cash flow, or they can sell the business and walk away and do whatever's next and whatever's important in their life. This area has never had opportunities before. I think as you grow a business into $50, $100 million sales, there's other options, but most people don't have those options, and that's why we exist. Of course, you exist to mainly help U.S.-based companies, right? But would you go global? Would you look at companies that perhaps are international in their, in their perspective, or at least where they build, to be selling via into the U.S.? Absolutely. We already will price to acquire or drive a business that targets U.S. customers wherever in the globe the business is located. For now, though, our focus is building a value proposition for U.S. consumers, and at some point in the future, we'll expand that. U.S. consumers have got quite a lot of choice right now, and in fact, they're getting a lot of choice from abroad. I'm just thinking of how Sheen is really managing to dominate, capture attention in the lower-end price point of garments. You're thinking about TikTok that's potentially going to start adding shopping to its remit. Like, How is the world of e-commerce in the U.S. from your perspective? Well, most digitalization of commerce hasn't been very successful. So we're 30 years into e-commerce, and roughly e-commerce accounts for 12, 13, maybe 14 percent of e-commerce. And there's fundamental reasons why that's true, why there's a big blocker, is that nobody has a way of discovering uh, inspired purchases, products that you serendipitously discover when you're in the real world. If you're at a shopping mall or if you're at a department store back in the day, you see things that inspire you. And really the only way that works online today is through Instagram ads to Shopify stores, which is a very inefficient way of discovering products. Most of the time when you're on Instagram, you really want to see your friend's content. You don't really want to be shopping, but you get interrupted by ads and 1% of those people click on those ads and buy something. And that's, you know, not the best way to substitute to go to the design district in Miami or a shopping mall in New Jersey when I was growing up. But that's what we're building is aggregation that inspires purchases. And nobody in the West has ever done that before successfully. So how? Like when you've got, you know, DoorDash engineers, <laughs> some of the early ones really thinking about the way in which we engage and shop. Like what are the innovations that we can't see around the corner of yet? Well, we're going to ship um, some products in the next quarter, so it's starting in September, that will show some inspired purchases. Um, the first thing we needed to do was acquire brands, products, SKUs, and a customer base. You really need, you know, you have a kind of a proverbial chicken and egg problem. So we needed to start with products and SKUs. Now that we have a supply of over 100,000 SKUs and over 2 million consumers that bought something from us, we can stitch them together into a compelling value proposition that is a standalone app that people are going to want on the home screen of their phone. What's interesting about your business, of course, is that 
where you're buying other businesses, sometimes outright, sometimes just managing. What's that like from a valuation perspective? Have those lifestyle CEOs, are they willing to sell their business when perhaps things don't look as pretty from a valuation perspective for them? Well, we study this empirically. And 7% of brand owners on Shopify want to sell their business right now, and 74% want to sell it sometime in the future. So the acquisition process works really well for the 7% who want to sell. We'll make them an offer. It's very attractive. And then they can go on and invest the money however they like. Um, for people who are in the 74%, they may opportunistically want to sell, but they can just get the cash flow and have the passive income with none of the stress. So we've kind of created a product suite that appeals to a very wide set of brand owners on Shopify. You've got 130 there or thereabouts of employees. What's the market like for talent at the moment, Keith? It's a great question. I think the talent's widely available right now. I think people are frustrated with large company bureaucracy and are willing to join new companies and you know, trying to transform parts of the world or all the world or industries. Uh, so that's become easier. I think there's a lot of less sort of vanity metrics and fake fundings where companies are getting funded that they shouldn't. So people are you know, sort of migrating to create a critical density of talent around companies that have high potential. You can show off your high potential, of course, because of the, the money that you were able to raise. Was it more than 150 million in equity? You valued at about a billion dollars. You're a man who also sits on the other side of the table and often is writing these checks in this environment. How, how are valuations for big tech startups right now? Well, we've been very disciplined at Founders Fund. Um, I think we've been consistently disciplined maybe even before the market changed. But fundamentally, there's been a massive transformation in Series A, Series B, and late-stage growth uh, company valuations. And so we're investing but very selectively. Uh, the right founders who are the you know, extraordinary founders with a compelling vision. But we have to pay prices and valuations that reflect reality. So we went through about a two- or three-year window when valuations were really divorced from reality. That occasionally happens in tech about every 20, 30 years, like this happened in 1996, 97, 98. But by 99 is 2000, you know, that three to four year window was totally gone and things were back to normal. So if you take an arc of 40 years, if you pay, if you invest at the right prices, things work out well on technology, but there's blips of two to three years when you can feel good with just momentum investing. Is there just momentum investing around AI at the moment? Right, I, I, we think so. I don't believe in AI companies as a good uh, you know, place for VCs to be spending their time, but I'm glad my competitors want to waste their money there. Really? Like, what, what makes you reticent? Because you don't think that a lot of them are actually integrally AI at their core? Well, no, I think that there's a classic uh, structural advantage in new technologies. And some of these technologies are disruptive and they disrupt incumbents and their powers. And some actually enable incumbents to get stronger. AI is most likely going to generate more power for large tech, large market cap tech companies, not really be a substitute. And if there is a substitute, it's probably going to be open AI, which we've invested in, fortunately. Ah. And so how are you seeing the global nature of AI and the fierce competition there? Is, do you think that the US giants are going to be the ones stealing the thunder here, or do you think it will be in China, for example? I'm, I'm seriously concerned about China's progress in AI. I think it's been underreported and under, uh, uh, you know, and uh, policymakers and regulators haven't paid enough attention. That's starting to change, but there's a lot of advantages China has in AI. There's less privacy. There's more people, more data, 
usually makes AI better. Their organizational top-down hierarchy may work better for AI building. There's all, so and, and, and their computing power and their chips are actually pretty first rate. I think we've underestimated that as well. So the combination is very scary. And this is a major threat to the United States. The future, the geopolitical future of the United States is whoever wins the AI race will have major advantages. So this is something that everybody in the United States, you know, from entrepreneur, from the entrepreneur level to the presidential level, need to pay attention to every day. Well, thanks for making us pay attention to it. Thanks for shining a light on some of the Chinese competition coming in in e-commerce stretch as well and just the whole world lens that you get from Open Store and indeed Founders Fund. We appreciate it so much. CEO of Open Store, Keith Raboy there. Meanwhile, coming up, look, we've got to talk a little bit about social media. Talked to TikTok a moment ago. Let's talk threads. Let's talk X. Let's talk about threads coming onto desktop and what X is doing to disable your blocks. We'll discuss it all in Going Viral. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year, that's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Time for going viral. A look at what the internet is talking about. According to reports, Meta is planning to launch a web version of its app threads early this week. Now, the web version is already being tested internally at the company. We've also got some updates on X. Bloomberg's Max Chafkin is here with more. And... I mean, there was a lot of hype and actually, you know, reinforced hype when it came to threads. And then it's kind of just dulled away a little bit. 
Yeah, you know, back when uh, Meta, you know, the company formerly known as Facebook, launched Threads, the, the kind of criticism was they're just taking the audience from Instagram, which is a huge mm -hmm. platform, you know, obviously with billions of users, and sort of grafting it onto this new social network. Uh, critics were, were questioning whether that audience would stay. We saw 100 uh, million people download the app. And what's happened is is kind of what, what I'd say critics were, were worried about, which is that the audience has kind of fallen off. Um, we're, we're seeing, you know, it's still getting used. Um, it's, it's still, if it weren't a Facebook product, I think um, people would be really impressed by it. But, but now they're back down sort of more in startup territory, and we're seeing the company kind of start to do these normal things. You know, a web interface doesn't sound that exciting. It does, there is a little bit of a, you know, what, like, uh, you know, 2,000 called, and uh, uh, it's, 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 it's not what you would normally think of as a product update. But this is the kind of thing that is important for marketers, yeah. social media people, if they want to have kind of like brands using the service, having, having a web interface will help. And I think therein lies the issue is that brands wanted to save a space but we as the user wanted things we were familiar with that Twitter now known as X makes. Interestingly, X is taking away things that we quite like using on X. Yeah, about that. Elon Musk kind of showing up on, on X, uh, formerly Twitter, last week, saying he's going to get rid of the block feature. Mm. That's the feature that allows uh, you to essentially prevent people to, from reading your tweets while, lo while you're logged into the account. Also um, means you don't see messages from trolls and so on. Um, a lot of people like this, people on sort of both sides of the political aisle, brands like it. It's, it's a little bit surprising to see Elon Musk doing this. The one thing I'll say is, you know, Musk has seemed to be trying to do whatever he can to kind of goose engagement uh, to, you know, we've, we've seen reports about, you know, and, and it's disputed, to what extent has tr Twitter's traffic gone up or down? Um, and it seems like this would be an effort to, to get more people logging in more of the time. Because if you're getting trolled, if you're getting into fights, um, then you're using the platform. And, and it's, it's, all, it's all gold uh, as far as Elon Musk's concerned. The, the point, the, the response to that is that brands, of course, do not like uh, having their ads appear next to trolls, and that's kind of been one of the central uh, criticisms from Madison Avenue uh, of Twitter, now X, in the Elon Musk era. And it's been one of the central focuses of the new CEO, Linda Yaccarino. I mean, de facto, whether she's not in control or is trying to drive real change, but it's all been about brand safety from their perspective. Well, she's certainly talking a lot about brand safety because it's something that uh, that the brands care about. And But on the other hand, there hasn't been a lot of necessarily action around that besides statements by Linda Yaccarino. I think a lot of advertising people are, are, are sort of taking a wait and see approach. They, they like what she's saying. They like her. They know her track record, but they're not seeing um, steps towards brand safety or, or, or they might question whether there's been real effort in terms of brand safety, and, and this is not going to help. This is not going to uh, assure those concerns in any way, although it may add a little bit more traffic, a little bit more engagement, which, of course, social networks need, and, and you know, Threads engagement seems to be falling, um, and, of course, Elon Musk certainly craves that attention. Meanwhile, he says there isn't a good social media network out there at the moment, so sort of self-flagellation at the same time. Max, always great to catch up with him. You've got to go and read him all across Bloomberg, of course, whether it be on Business Week or here. Like this year,
Virginia continues to mark a kind of gradual return to a five-day in-office work week as more company require staff to return to the office, at least four days at least. However, some argue that limiting work from home will hit women that took advantage of the flexibility harder than men. So how will this trend impact what diversity looks like on the executive level going forward? I'm pleased to say that someone's putting a lot of thought into this is the Chief People Officer of ServiceNow, Jackie Canney. And it's great to have some time with you, Jackie. And just at the moment, it's you're trying to think about talent, about retainment, about ensuring that people can work most effectively from wherever they are. Are you asking people to come back to the office to ensure that it's that serendipity? Or are you keeping a flexibility around ServiceNow? Uh, well, first, thank you for having us here. It's such a great opportunity to talk about what I care so much about, which is town strategy and, and people and how they can thrive. And here at ServiceNow, we've been always leading with flexibility and trust for our people, even before COVID and then certainly during COVID. And now, you know, we, we still lean on, we have the opportunity where our people with their managers can pick what persona they want to be in. Is it to be a remote person, meaning you're out, you're not in the office at all? Is it to be a flexible person where you're one to three? three days in the office per week and then are you in the office all the time and we continue to you know let our people let that unfold and it's been working really great for us does that I was talking to someone who works in other key tech companies having to make that decision right now as to whether they sign up to be fully remote or not and well they're mainly worried about what the winter looks like how they will then feel in months to come how that ultimately unfolds how do you ensure that flexibility remains flexible to opt in and opt out of it's for sure this conversation between a manager and, and a person here. It's we have flexibility in that conversation too, and we're continually, uh, you know, adding these requests and trying to manage them all so that people get to put their point of view out there. And then if we can make it happen, they can pick the persona that they want to they want to be in. So I, I expect, you know, the winter could create a different environment. There's summer here in the U.S. that also, you know, people need more flexibility, and we've been able to to keep those promises. So without a mandatory office attendance, are you kind of like the biggest flexible distributed workforce? Hmm, I'd like to think so. I haven't really checked on that, but we certainly are amongst the biggest. And, you know, I think the people being able to, to have a, a covenant with each other on I'm going to be in the office one to three days as flexible is really important. And if if you're not going to be in one to three days and you have to talk to your manager about why you're not going to be there. So I, I think we can continue with flexibility um, and accountability in the same way so we can get the growth, the innovation, the shoulder to shoulder camaraderie where we can and certainly really dial it into moments that matter. So I'm in the New York office today. One of the jobs I take seriously is to represent this workforce in New York, whether it's about coming in because there's a great learning and development opportunity, or you know we have other visitors coming in that you can learn from, or there's a community social event where we're helping give back in New York. And I think that is actually what's bringing people into the office more than a mandate or you know sort of being specific. And I think that those moments that matter will continue to like have us earn the community for our people to come in. I'm sure they're coming in to talk about the technology they're building. Yeah. How much are they worried, particularly in your area, of focusing on reducing bias and ensuring equality? When we think about generative AI and AI, how much is, is there thought about that at the moment, the way in which you deploy it at ServiceNow? We are such an optimistic company. You know, we have great ambitions. You've probably heard Bill McDermott talk about us becoming the Desco 21C, which is the, you know, defining enterprise software company of the 21st century. So innovation, technology, generative AI are always at the 
top of everyone's mind. And it's an exciting, optimistic place to be to talk about those things. Specific around bias and the things that you just asked me about, you know, I believe that the technology can help us take that out. So you have a job description, you can use generative AI to review that job description and say, these are the things Mm. that come out because it is creating bias versus the negative, darker side of AI. And we take it very seriously in how we, you know, build governance and trust. We're here for the optimism. Jackie Canning, thank you so much. ServiceNow, CPO, great to have some time with them. And and ultimately, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Don't forget to check out our podcast. You can find it on the terminal, online on Apple, Spotify, iHeart. From New York, this is Bloomberg Technology. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.